Hello, everyone, and welcome to Joe's Tango Podcast, where we hear from all types of fascinating tango professionals. I'm your host, Joe Yang. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back, all you regulars, and a big welcome to all you first-timers. Really glad you're here. If you've been a fan for a while and you'd like to help keep the podcast going, I'm accepting donations through PayPal. There's a link in the description and also one on the podcast website. Thanks for your support. So you're probably familiar with the song that you're hearing in the background. Tango DJs all over the world have played it at Milongas. It is an awesome version of Milonga del Ayer, arranged and performed by Craig Einhorn. Craig is a highly accomplished guitarist, very interesting guy with a lot of fascinating stories, and it's an honor to have him on the show. And with me now is the one and only Craig Einhorn. Craig, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Joe. It's, it's really an honor. I'm, I'm very pleased you called me and contacted me about this. Yeah, yeah. We, we, you know, I'm sure you hear this from a lot of tango communities. We, we love your music. Um, that song, uh, Milonguea de Ayer, is, uh, is a big favorite amongst a lot of tango DJs. That was actually the song my wife and I chose for our first dance during our wedding reception last May. So uh, we really love that song. Wow, that's that's uh, really an honor, a, a very personal <laughs> honor from yeah. you that you used that song for your wedding uh, first dance. That's that's wonderful. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful song. So you fell in love with the guitar before you were a teenager. So how did how did that happen? I guess when I look back on my early life, I think back to going to summer camp every mm-hmm. summer for two months, and that summer camp was fairly close to Woodstock, New York. It was oh. in Monroe, New York, and so. Th- and I started there when I was seven years old, which was in 1972. Okay. And Woodstock was in 69, only yeah. three years earlier. Mm-hmm. So the counselors who were maybe, you know, 16, 17 years old, they were very much in tune with what happened in Woodstock a few years earlier. And they played and sang guitar, some of them. And I was smitten with the guitar. I was smitten with the music and the guitar. And the whole culture at that time, there was a folk music renaissance in the United States. Mm. And so they would play music on a loudspeaker. And the whole camp at certain times of the day would be listening to the Beatles and Joni Mitchell and mm-hmm. Pete Seeger and Bob Dylan. <laughs> nice. And, and so that's, that's where the guitar just completely uh, blew me away. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until I was 11 years old back at that summer camp Mm-hmm. when a friend of mine brought a guitar to summer camp and I played it all summer long. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't play it at all, but I did. <laughs> wow. So how did you learn? Were you self-taught or did someone teach you? I was self-taught in camp by a kid who was also 11 years old, a very mm. close friend of mine named Keith Block, who I'm still in touch with, and he lives in Los Angeles. Nice. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, the kid who brought the guitar to camp uh, moved to Eugene, Oregon, and mm. we reconnected because his his wife actually saw that I was performing somewhere, uh-huh. showed him the advertisement, and he said, I know a guy named Craig Einhorn, and then <laughs> we re- re- reconnected about 15 years ago. Wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, amazing. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, you all, you all can I reconnected after, after all those years. Yeah. So I went home and I, I asked my parents for guitar, and they were very reluctant because they were uh, baby boomers before the generation of the the 1960s kind of scene. And they were worried that 
a, a, a kid who played guitar would eventually grow his hair long and do drugs and all kinds of right. terrible. <laughs> and, and so <laughs> we can laugh about that now. So they said no at first. Mm-hmm. And then I was so adamant about getting a guitar that they borrowed one from a cousin and I played that one for a while. And then they finally bought me my own guitar. Nice. Nice. Yeah, that's great. That's kind of, it's kind of fun. You wanted to play the guitar. They, they didn't want you to. I grew up with an Asian family where you're sort of forced to, to choose an instrument. <laughs> so, right. Yeah, right. That's, that's great. Right. Yeah. Well, I must say they, they, I, I was playing clarinet. That was the instrument that I was, okay. that I chose before that in elementary school. Nice. So what was the first time uh, performing in front of people? Was that at that camp or was that a little bit later on? I suppose I remember being in a musical. I was in Guys and Dolls at the camp as a very young kid. I must have been less than 10 years old or about mm-hmm. 10 years old. And I sang, I, I played the part of Nicely, Nicely Johnson, and I sang Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat, oh. which is a very, very syncopated, funky tune. And that was, uh, that was an experience. Uh, it was a scary experience. It's, it's very scary uh, getting on stage in front of hundreds of people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you still get a little nervous now? I rarely get nervous anymore. Okay. And I think the the nerves go away when you do the proper amount of preparation. Mm-hmm. I, I used to have a saying, and I still think about it sometimes, I ain't scared, I'm prepared. Okay. So I, I try to, if the, I think the more you prepare, the less nervous you're likely to be. Mm-hmm. Although nervousness can sometimes creep up on you and get you when you least expect it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I imagine if Steve, Steve Colbert asks me to play on his show, uh-huh. that I would be incredibly nervous. <laughs> <laughs> and we know that's not going to happen. But oh, you never one, know. One can always dream. You never know. One can always dream. Mm-hmm. Actually, if I do, I'll call you and you can dance. Okay. Oh, so. my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so these days, how, how often do you practice? I mean, you probably practice every day, but how does, that, how does your practice session work? Some people regiment their music learning and and preparing with a, in a very strict way. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm not like that. I I consider myself a guitar addict, mm. and unlike drugs, I consider music addiction to be a very healthy thing. So I think it's it's really what I do is I try to pick it up when as much as I can, and mm-hmm. I I like to have a guitar around, and I like to take it out of the case and mm-hmm. play it. Nice. Uh, I say in the case because I like the guitars to be in the case. It, it prevents mishaps and it keeps the environment, like air and temperature, from affecting the guitars mm-hmm. in a bad way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I just I'm, I find myself always opening my guitar case and and pulling it out. Nice, yeah, so. yeah. That's always nice to hear. You know how routines work or what they what they do because you'll hear you know depending on who you ask you'll hear very many different uh, different answers. Yeah. Yeah, Segovia, you know Andres Segovia, the great uh, Spanish classical guitarist. If it weren't for him, probably 99% of classical guitarists nowadays would, would never have become classical guitarists. Oh. And he, he said, he had a lot of interesting sayings, and one of them was, if I don't practice for one day, I know it. Oh. If I don't practice for two days, I know it, and all my friends know, know it. And if I don't practice for three days, everybody knows it. Oh. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> memorable, memorable things. Yeah. 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 So it wasn't until a little bit later when you discovered classical guitar, right? Because you, you had a lot of experience with other other genres. Was it um, was it in Arizona where you where you got in more into classical guitar? 
Uh, no, I grew up in Yonkers, New York, which is just north of the Bronx. Okay. So it's very much New York culture, New York accents that people have, yeah. New York New York way of life. Mm-hmm. And I played folk music and rock music. Uh, I played a lot of electric guitar even when I was mm. uh, 15, 16, 17 years old. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, went to college in Fredonia, New York, mm-hmm. which is about as far west as you can go in New York. And there I was studying radio and television communications, but I really love music. Mm-hmm. But I didn't think that I could study music because I didn't have a background in reading music or anything really formal. Mm-hmm. So I took a music theory course for non-music majors. Mm-hmm. And I met this long-haired heavy metal guitar player in class, mm-hmm. Sean McGraw. Mm-hmm. And Sean was a great musician and really enthusiastic. And he invited me to his house. He actually was from that town and lived in a a big, beautiful old house. And he played classical guitar for me. He played Bach. He played a, a very mm. famous Bach Boré. And I said, oh my God, you can play music, formal music on the guitar. You can play classical music or Baroque music on the guitar. And mm. I, that was a, a pivotal moment in my life. I just, I was, it just knocked me over and I said, <laughs> I have to do this. Mm-hmm. And then I borrowed some uh, very basic books from a, uh, a kid who lived in my dorm who was studying classical guitar. Mm-hmm. And then I bought a classical guitar at a garage sale for $10. <laughs> oh, nice. $10, yeah, it was really terrible. And then I kept the secret from my parents who mm-hmm. would have been horrified and eventually <laughs> were horrified that I was changing my major to music. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then I, I auditioned for the music department at the end of my freshman year. Mm-hmm. And the teacher said, I'm sorry, you're not good enough to be a music major. Oh. And I was, I was completely devastated. And I, I, he said, well, look, he said, if you want to get into the music program and try to work your way up, he said, I'll give you a conditional acceptance. Mm. And I said, I don't want to be, be a conditional student. I want to be a student. And he said, well, then you, that's your only option. And I said, okay. Mm-hmm. And I started uh, that next September. I went back to school. I started as a conditional student and mm-hmm. within three months I was accepted as a full music student. Wow. Nice. Yeah. So what was yeah. the, you know, that, that time when you were, uh, I guess through, as a conditional student, did you, did you change your practicing? I remember at that time when you're a conditional student, you're not allowed to take private lessons. So I was in a class with three other kids taking classical guitar class with the same teacher who I took the audition with. Mm-hmm. And I remember him telling the other other kids, I say kids, we were 18 years old, mm-hmm. saying to the other kids, look at Craig's hands, because I was holding my hands the proper way, and mm-hmm. they weren't. And so I quickly, I was, I was dedicated, right? Mm-hmm. Sorry, I really, really wanted to learn this. So I practiced a lot and tried to prove myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's nice. That's, that's great. Like what, what you're saying, what you're telling us and what we've heard from other people on the podcast is just that, is just that passion, just really putting in the time and in, in, in the discipline to to go for what you want and look at look at what happens. That's that's really awesome. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, and I had a lot of opposition from my parents who were they were very now I understand. I'm fifty four years old now. Now I understand. I don't have children, but if I did mm-hmm. and they were studying music, <laughs> I'd be well I'd be a lot more understanding than my parents were. Mm-hmm. But I do understand 
their preoccupation with and their worry about me making a living and, and making ends meet. Mm-hmm. And it, it is it is difficult. Yeah. But uh, but you know a difficult life to me is 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 an unfulfilled life and and fortunately i recognized that at 18 years old i said i am going to be dissatisfied with my life if i don't get become accomplished at playing classical guitar Mm -hmm. and so i i pursued it with passion Mm -hmm. and i'm not the best in the world i mean of course nobody can compare with paco de lucia Mm -hmm. and nobody can and nowadays there are so many just incredible guitar players out there mm-hmm. and so what i try to do is make my music beautiful and make my music uh have some sort of emotional effect on people mm-hmm. because in terms of playing fast or playing complicated uh i'm definitely not going to uh be able to compete with all of the most incredible players out there mm-hmm. So I don't have the discipline for sitting and practicing <laughs> scales all day mm-hmm. and practicing theory and studying theory all day. Mm-hmm. And so I don't like to sit for three or four hours a day and practice that. I like to play for 15 minutes and think about music a little bit, mm. experiment. More. So for me, music is more about communication mm-hmm. and soul, the, the, the spirit, the, the, be- the beauty of music, rather than to be some sort of impressive, virtuosic, kind of thing mm-hmm. yeah i'm not trying to impress people i'm trying to share something beautiful with people yeah that that definitely comes through with uh with your music which is which is awesome yeah so a lot of tango folks um they they love your your music and it's great that you <laughs> that we've become uh familiar with who you are so i know you've had you know exposure to a lot of genres playing folk playing rock how did you come mm-hmm. across Argentine tango? Well, I live in Eugene, Oregon. I came here in 1996. When I first came here, I met someone maybe a year later, and I started dating her mm-hmm. when I was about 31. And we lived together for about five years, and then mm-hmm. we broke up. Mm-hmm. And I was looking for ways to meet people and maybe date someone new. And so I went to a square dance. Mm. And... At square dances, you get to you change partners during the, every single dance, and you wind up dancing with every single person of the opposite gender. Mm-hmm. So I was there and went through the whole square dance at, at a gymnasium at an elementary school in in, uh, in Eugene, Oregon. Mm-hmm. And at, after the dance was over, a woman got up to the microphone and announced that she was going to be giving tango lessons, and if anybody's interested, <laughs> to come get a flyer from her. So I thought, well. Why not? And so I went and, and met her. Mm-hmm. Her name is Leah Davis. She still lives in Eugene. We're still friends. Mm-hmm. And she gave me a flyer, and I took four lessons in a private home. And after that, she suggested that there was uh, a teacher, uh, named, uh, a woman named Vicki Ayers, mm-hmm. who used to live in Eugene. And she was teaching classes at the university for credit, I believe, mm-hmm. for the dance department. But if you were not interested in getting taking the class for credit you could also take it as a community member mm-hmm. so that was i took that and then she suggested i go to the tango center which was doesn't exist anymore but eugene had the largest tango club in the whole united states really wow i didn't know that for for a good 10 or 15 years and that club was uh we didn't have the most people but we the the club itself was huge mm-hmm. and about 15 16 years ago 
that club was exploding with interest, uh, people interested in tango. So it was really, really a wonderful time. Mm -hmm. And so I got involved in dancing. Okay. I, I lost track of what your question was. So no, that's okay. I just, I just, that this is good. Your, 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 your tango story. This is exactly um, what, what we're curious to, to know about. Oh, when you first yeah. heard tango music, what was your impression? I'm embarrassed to say I wasn't attracted to tango music <laughs> until I started dancing. Tango oh. music, and also Americans in general, mm-hmm. have a very warped idea of what tango <laughs> is. Right. Unless they get involved in Argentine tango. Mm-hmm. I mean, God forbid someone gets involved in ballroom tango. <laughs> and then yeah. and then they play some music that has nothing to do with tango, mm-hmm. and they dance whatever they call tango has nothing to do with tango. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and excuse me for being judgmental to That's all the okay. ballroom dancers out there, but mm-hmm. if you, I lived in Argentina for six years, mm-hmm. and I studied tango dance there, and I met with incredibly talented tango musicians there. Mm-hmm. And so when you when you realize and you look at ballroom tango, then you. It, it, it can't, you can't help but be disappointed. I'll mm-hmm. put it lightly and say a little disappointed. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's so, funny. Uh, my first impression of tango, I remember buying this tango CD and had old, um, you know, Carlos Gardel. And I was all ready to listen to it. And it was like, it was like scratchy and very foreign to me. And I was like, what the F is this? And it wasn't until years yeah. later when I really started to, to appreciate it. So, <laughs> yeah. Right, right. And then you have, mm-hmm. you know, the danceability of a lot of that music. Right. So uh, that's such an important factor. And when you, when you listen to it without dancing, it, it doesn't, it, it may not mean the same thing to you or, or touch you the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when did the the music, I guess, I suppose, when did you uh, start getting interested in trying to attempt to play tango music? Well, this is the thing is the, the tango center had live musicians occasionally. Mm. And they weren't necessarily experts on tango. There were people who lived in Eugene, mm-hmm. maybe someone from Portland, Oregon, and occasionally maybe someone from Argentina. And then, then I would hear someone who really knew what they were doing. Mm. And I was a musician and I, I felt guilty. Mm-hmm. I, thought, I thought, I'm a musician. I should be doing this too. Mm. So I learned as much as I could with limited, uh, I mean, at that time I already had a master's in classical guitar, mm-hmm. but that doesn't prepare you for tango and, and understanding a very complex and and foreign because mm-hmm. we're american it's very foreign uh, art form yeah i'm always amazed at russians who play jazz you know mm-hmm. or even argentines who play jazz and so, so, some of them are just fabulous yeah and it's it's, it's our culture it's our music mm-hmm. so it, for for me it's it, it, it's very difficult very difficult to to understand and play tango and i still feel that way so i went on online mm-hmm. And I started looking for sheet music that might be free. Mm-hmm. And, and Mi Longa de la Cher was, was one of those pieces. Mm-hmm. And I started learning tangos that were meant for dancing or not meant for dancing. I just put together whatever I could. Mm. And I would go down to the tango center and, and eventually I became one of the musicians who would play. Nice. And, 
as you probably know, when 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 musicians play at milongas, mm-hmm. they don't play all night long. They mm-hmm. play recorded music, and then they'll have maybe thirty minutes of a live musician, yeah. and then they'll go back to recorded music. So I would play two sets of mm-hmm. maybe thirty minutes, something like that. It was always a challenge, and still is a challenge for me, especially on solo guitar. It's hard to play for a full dance floor, mm-hmm. even if there's only five couples on the floor. Mm-hmm. It's hard to support the dance with just a guitar. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember your so, very first time playing at a milonga for dancers? You know, I don't remember it, but I'm glad nobody videoed it. <laughs> <laughs> but I can I can imagine what it was like. It was mm-hmm. it was similar to the other mm-hmm. times, except for. I, I probably really wasn't didn't do very well. I I I don't think it was a disaster, but but I think I just I had a I had a, quite a lot to learn. Mm. Yeah, but like you said, just playing for dancers that's that's a that's a different creature than I suppose playing for a seated audience. Yeah, because you know when I when I speak to tango musicians, they say you know they're watching the dancers, dancers are watching the um, the musicians, and it sort of becomes another dance partner the uh, the band yes and you know now that you say that mm-hmm. th- here's another huge reason why i felt guilt while dancing mm-hmm. and seeing other people playing music for the dance and me not being involved in the music part of it because i was a musician mm-hmm. but in addition to just being a musician when i was in my last year of my bachelor's degree in new york mm-hmm. and in my my two years and and even after I finished my master's at Arizona State, mm-hmm. I was accompanying modern dance. Mm. So I was heavily involved, especially at Arizona in Arizona. I I was given a, a graduate assistantship in dance accompaniment, modern mm-hmm. dance accompaniment. Yeah, and I had to play at first ten hours a week of dance classes. Wow. And then eventually, when they gave me a job afterwards, I was playing twenty hours a week of dance classes. <laughs> Holy cow! And you think about that, I mean, think about setting up and getting there mm-hmm. and then actually being there to play music for the dance classes for 20 hours. Wow. That's a lot of um, music. And it was almost always improvised. I'd say 99% improvised wow. music. And usually I would play uh, percussion. Mm-hmm. I, I would play piano a little bit and I almost never played guitar. Because okay. if you have a classroom of 30 dancers mm-hmm. and they're all moving around and you can hear their footsteps. Even if I had a guitar amplifier, the guitar just doesn't give them that feeling of being supported. Mm-hmm. So I would usually start and play, I play piano terribly, but I would play a little bit of piano to start and then I would play percussion for the classes. Okay. So I'm, I'm a drummer also and percussionist. So, so this is, this is why I felt guilt because mm-hmm. I had experience playing for dance. Mm-hmm. And eventually, I, I got myself into that. And, and really, Eugene, Eugene gave me a very low-pressure opportunity mm-hmm. to get involved with that. There wasn't, if, if I think if I was in New York City, yeah. I might not have ever been given the chance. Mm-hmm. Or even Portland, Oregon, where there's a, a great tango scene. So Eugene was just such a, a smaller city, not as, many, not as much competition. And so here I was given the chance to accompany tango and develop myself as a tango accompanist. Mm-hmm. So you did spend some time in, in Buenos Aires getting a really up-close look at tango music. Uh, how did that influence you as a musician? Well, I think the first thing is it humbled me. Mm-hmm. I've got incredible respect for musicianship in general in Argentina mm-hmm. and specifically for countless musicians that I met, many of whom I became 
close friends with. One of the fascinating things about Buenos Aires is that you can meet people who are very well known mm. and become chummy with them. Mm. It's, it's really amazing. And maybe that's an economic thing that times are hard there. So mm. they're not separated from society. I'll give you an example. There's a guy named Rudy Flores. Mm-hmm. And he is from an area called El Litoral, mm-hmm. which is in the north- northeast of Argentina. And that is a place where all the great folk guitarists come from. Mm-hmm. People who play styles like chamame mm-hmm. and chacarera yeah. and tango and bulonga. Nice. And, and they, gen- a lot of them come to go to Buenos Aires because that's where they can work on a regular basis and make money. Mm. And this, this guy, Rudy Flores, is a mind-boggling uh, classical guitar player. He's, he can play tango, but he focuses on the folk music more. Mm. And I'm on a first-name basis with him. And last time I saw him, <laughs> he gave me a big hug. That's great. And it's not just like, okay, you're the guy from the United States, so I'm going to give you a hug. He mm. really recognizes me, and I really have a friendship with him. It's, yeah. it's not like, it's, I'm not exaggerating. Mm-hmm. And so not only do I have a chance to meet them and hang out, I mean, I've sat down and had lunch with him. So, nice. And I've seen him countless times, but I guess the point of the, what I started to tell you about Rudy Flores is mm. that a friend of mine who's a great guitarist came down to Argentina with, uh, for a few weeks and stayed with me. And I told him, I brought him to see certain guitar players and we went to see Rudy and the, both times that we saw Rudy, one was at a community center mm-hmm. in a very poor neighborhood. And then he, my friend wasn't expecting to hear impressive music. Mm-hmm. And Rudy started playing, and he was just bowled over, wow. bowled over. And then <laughs> a few days later, we went to see him at a pizza restaurant. Mm-hmm. And he was playing for people who were from his area, all the people that came kind of meet there at this pizza restaurant. Mm-hmm people who moved to Buenos Aires. And when we went there, he was ready for the great music, but then he was surprised that he was playing in a pizza restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> so, wow. yeah, it was, it was just, uh, mm. just amazing. Nice. So, nice. Yeah, just, just musically, uh, how did that time in Argentina uh, shape your, your playing? You know, if you want to get better at playing music, the worst thing is to be around musicians who are not as talented as you. Mm-hmm. The, the, the best thing is to be around musicians who are more talented than you. Mm-hmm. So you can try to emulate them and rise to their level. Mm-hmm. And I definitely have not risen to their level, but I've, I, I learned so much just by being around them and playing with them. Mm-hmm. I learned about certain rhythms mm-hmm. and, and certain rhythms and styles which go together. And the, the, the first style that really fascinated me was a style called samba, mm-hmm. Argentine samba, mm. which is spelled Z-A-M-B-A. It's not like Brazilian samba. It's a folk music in 3-4 time, mm-hmm. but it doesn't sound like a waltz. Interesting. And so if you listen to it, you, if you're not paying attention and you're not counting, it just may sound like something in 4-4. Four, four. Okay. But uh, the rhythm... We're on a cell phone here, so I don't know if uh, this rhythm is going to come through very well, okay. but I'll try to clap softly and see what see if it goes. But the rhythm to samba is... 
Normally, when you think of a three, four time, you would think one, two, three, one, mm-hmm. two, three, like a waltz thing. That's so. really interesting. That's almost, that's almost like a malonga waltz, <laughs> you know, if you were to try to, to malonga and waltz rhythm. But yeah, that's really, that's really cool. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right that if you, uh, that's, that's the milonga rhythm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there there is there is sort of a relationship yeah. between those those, mm-hmm. even though one is in in three four and and milonga is in in two. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I'm thinking now and making sure I'm telling you the things correctly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I want to say, if you don't mind me directing the conversation to uh, something, I want to. Tell, tell you about yeah, yeah yeah i recorded milonga de la chair mm-hmm. long before i went to argentina mm-hmm. so i wasn't i didn't have that influence oh and in a sense that i was fortunate to not be have that influence mm-hmm. i was i was liberated to experiment mm-hmm. and i was doing a cd called choros mm-hmm. which was mostly brazilian choros mm-hmm a style from Brazil. And I wanted to fill up, needed to fill up the CD. I wanted the CD to be an hour long. So I added Milonga de la Cher as filler. I didn't mm-hmm. think it was going to become <laughs> any sort of hit. Mm-hmm. Now, Milonga de la Cher is the title that I say just because it's easier to say than Milonguea de la Cher mm-hmm. or Milongueo de la Cher. Yeah. But let me tell you why there are three titles for the song. I'll start with that. Sure. Abel Fleury, who is the composer, mm-hmm. composed it for so- solo guitar. And he gave it the title Milonga de la Cher when he wrote it by hand. Mm-hmm. Then once it was published, the, the title was, uh, it was given the title Milongueo de la Cher, either by the publisher or maybe by Flaherty himself. Mm-hmm. And then when I learned it, I downloaded a, the free sheet music off mm-hmm. of the internet mm-hmm. and it said Milonguea de la Cher. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that it was wrong. And so uh. that's, I published it that way. But it wasn't really my mistake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask about that. I was going to ask about that. Why is it Milonga? I'm so glad you you, you cleared that up. Right. Mm-hmm. So the bad thing about that is if, is if people go online and look for Milongeo de la Cher, mm-hmm. it, they may be less likely to find my version. Mm. But the good news about that is it, it distinguishes my version. It's got yeah. one letter difference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm not sure if it, if it benefits me or if it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Well, I did a I did a search for it as Milonga de la Jere, and, and it still comes up. So, I think people right. will have an easy time finding it. Yeah. So, how did you feel when you when you found out that song became pretty popular among uh, many tango communities? I you know I started to find out about it little by little, mm-hmm. and then the song started to get more and more popular, and I didn't know when it would end. <laughs> I recorded it in two thousand four and released it in two thousand five. Mm-hmm. And now it's 2019. I mean, I didn't think that people would, it would still be growing and, and, and still be playing in the Milongas. Mm-hmm. But I have a bunch of reasons for that. And, and if, if you'll allow me, I'll share my, my reasons. Yeah, yeah. Uh, first, let's talk about the music itself and why it touches a nerve with the tango community. Mm-hmm. I'm not aware of any version of Mil- Milonga de la Cher mm-hmm. that was recorded with 
more than just one guitar prior to my version. Mm-hmm. I may be wrong about that. There may be versions, especially in Argentina, mm-hmm. where it was part of the tango repertory amongst guitar players, but not. I've never u- seen it used for dance mm-hmm. before that either. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong about that too, but this is my experience and, and what mm-hmm. I see. So what I did to Milonga de la Cher is I, I made an arrangement for a small group. Mm-hmm. And I added electric bass, mm-hmm. and of course there's guitar, and then I added an African djembe drum, and I added a metallic wiro, which is like a scraper mm-hmm. from Senegal, Africa. Yeah, and then I added hand claps, and I play all the instruments on that recording. Awesome. Yeah, and the the hand claps were invented by a friend of mine who was helping me record and produce the the album. Mm. Her name is Rebecca Oswald, and she came up with this polyrhythm hand claps. Mm. The funny thing about those hand claps is they're very, very catchy. Yeah. And it's not so easy to get in the groove and ha- clap correctly. So if you try to clap along, maybe it's easier. But if I was to just play guitar and say, okay, do that clapping without hearing somebody yeah. do it already, <laughs> it's, hard to, it's hard to get in that groove and clap with the, with the, r- properly. Some musicians can do it with no effort at all. Mm-hmm. And some musicians, even experienced musicians, they can't do it. Yeah. So it just takes a little practice and getting in the groove, but it is a polyrhythm. It's a, it's an, it's an overlapping of two, mm. two meters, really. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I think that, that overlapping, that polyrhythm just really touches the nerve with tango dancers. other thing i think it harkens back to the origins of tango mm-hmm. it, it, it's a milonga and people dance milonga to it yeah but it, it it harkens back to cuba where the habanera the origin dance of tango mm-hmm. and the habanera was invented by african slaves mm-hmm. people working in the fields probably uh, working in the the sugarcane fields and they created the habanera and these were people who may have been born in Africa and knew African rhythms and maybe played African drums. Mm -hmm. And so I think by me playing a West African djembe, which of course is the instrument that I played when I was accompanying modern dance Mm -hmm. uh, at Arizona State University, that that just gives people, even if they're not aware of the origins of tango, I'm touching some sort of connection to the history of tango Mm. by putting that African drum in there. Because as you probably know, Mm -hmm. when you hear tango music, there's no percussion in tango. Right. And very old milonga, sometimes you hear percussion. Yeah. And then you start hearing percussion again in tango, in mm-hmm. modern tango. You see drum sets, mm-hmm. when you see people dance in modern tango. And that's one of the things I learned in Argentina about people adding drum set and electric bass and all modern instruments, but the traditional bandoneon along with all those mm-hmm. modern rock band instruments. Yeah. So my lack of familiarity with Buenos Aires, my lack of... of close contact with Argentina and the Argentine positions allowed me to just do whatever I felt like doing. And without knowing it, mm-hmm. I created, this is what I say, the stars aligned when I recorded that song. Yeah. 
a lot of things connected. My classical guitar technique, my classical mm-hmm. guitar study, my accompaniment of modern dance and my playing of, of drums, African mm-hmm. drums, when I played for African dance, and my dancing tango. That, I think that's a huge factor, is that I dance. Mm-hmm. And I still dance. But when I, before I recorded that song, even though I wasn't a good dancer, I, I had at least learned what the dancers want to hear mm-hmm. and feel while they're dancing. Nice. So when you, without realizing it, I touched a nerve with the tango community. I had no idea this people were going to like it so much. <laughs> and, and I do want to mention, mm-hmm. it's not my composition. Some people have written on some of the YouTube posts of yeah. the song. Yeah, yeah. You didn't write this. <laughs> and so I have to write underneath. Yes, you know, it's a song by Abel Fleury. He wrote it for solo guitar. Mm-hmm. I arranged it and I recorded it. Mm-hmm. And as long as I, now that I've touched this subject, mm-hmm. I want to say in the music business, there are two works of art. Mm-hmm. One work of art is the composition, mm-hmm. the other work of art is the recording. Mm-hmm. And because the whole music industry, in modern times, the last hundred or so years that we've been actually recording music, mm-hmm. it's recognized that recording music is an artistic process, mm-hmm. a creative process, and a complicated one. It's not easy to record. If, if it was so easy, most musicians would just do it, and there would, there would be every musician would have great recordings. Mm-hmm. But it takes a different approach to playing, and that's why I love the term recording artist. Yeah. It's like painting. You can take your time doing it and you can record track by track mm-hmm. or you can record. If not, if you don't do a track by track, you can with a band, you can record a song 20 times and pick the best one. Right. Right. Or even yeah. nowadays you can record the song 20 times and you can take 20 pieces and slap them together. Yeah. And no one on the computer. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, so where was I? Oh yeah. So the, I was talking about YouTube and how, how yeah. people, some people, maybe with a sarcastic tone or a little bit critical and said, yeah. this isn't your music. And, and I think on one of the, the responses to, to these people, I wrote, who wrote New York, New York? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Who, and for, and here's another example, who wrote Pound Dog mm-hmm. that Elvis Presley sang? Yeah. Right. And so Elvis Presley and Frank Sinatra never composed the song, mm-hmm. but does that make their music, not their music? Exactly. Yeah. Right. It's their music because they recorded it Mm -hmm. and and they created a beautiful version of it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And as an artist, if you if you compose the song and you record the song, Mm -hmm. you get twice as much the royalties, Mm. twice as much. If you if you only are the composer or you only are the recording artist, then you get half as much. Oh, yeah. So that's why uh, here's a funny story about the. Yeah. Now I'm going to. I'm going to distract us from tango altogether. <laughs> the, Dixie, the Dixie Chicks, yeah, wonderful, wonderful uh, musicians, and they. There's a story about them because they they were very successful, mm-hmm. and they toured the whole country and worked their tails off for a year, mm-hmm. and filled up huge auditoriums. And at the end of the year, the three of them were not happy with the amount of money that they had made, mm. and they realized that they didn't get. A lot of the money because they didn't compose even one of the songs oh. so then they went and started composing songs and now they are you they are much more successful now because at least financially economically for themselves they've mm-hmm. done very well because they realized that i don't want to say mistake because it's, it's not there's nothing wrong with uh, playing other people's music yeah 
but ec- economically, uh, they, they might have made a mistake uh, by not composing their own songs at first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you made me think of something else. I took an audio engineering class just for one uh, semester when I was in grad school. It was great. We learned how to use Pro Tools, and yeah, the audio engineer who taught it was was awesome. Kind of opened my eyes to all this. But apparently, um, you might know this: the the person who wrote the song "Happy Birthday" that that song, you know, on people's birthdays, it, he it's actually someone owns the rights to that. And apparently, uh, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, apparently it's pretty expensive to have that song, you know, in a in a show or in a movie. So a lot of times people will, will won't sing that song when there's a birthday scene. They'll sing for He's a Jolly Good Fellow instead because apparently that's in a public domain. Right. But yeah, so right. yeah, so I, I can't sing Happy Birthday exactly. here. Otherwise, I'll get hit with a copyright strike or something. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, as long as we're, I'll I'll relate this discussion to tango. Mm -hmm. Um, The copyright laws are different in the United States than they are in Argentina. So in the United States, the Disney, because they were afraid of uh, the Mickey Mouse Mm -hmm. um, copyright being expiring, Mm -hmm. they, they decided, they fought very hard to get the law changed. So it used to be 40 years, I believe, from the first publication. Mm-hmm. And they extended it to 75 years from the first publication. Mm-hmm. So if, if Disney had not done that, mm-hmm. there would be thousands and thousands of Mickey Mouse dolls coming over from China. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so they at least put that off for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And now in Argentina, the law is not from 75 years after first publication. It's mm-hmm. for something like 75 years after someone dies. Oh, Right, so that's much longer. Yeah. So your whole lifetime plus your family gets continues to get royalties for seventy five years after you die. Mm. Interesting. That's so. Carlos Gardel's music, for example, just went into public domain because mm. it's been more than seventy five years since his death. Wow. And right, so all those great tango, all that great tango music that we listened to from the nineteen sixties or fifties, or maybe even forties and fifties, mm-hmm. that music really we're stealing it. We're not paying Argentina for it at all these tango festivals and milongas. Mm. Nobody's paying these people that really, uh, according to Argentine law should be paid. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So we all need to go down to Argentina and go to their milongas. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's, that's our repayment, right? We support the tango community in in Buenos Aires. (laughs) We'll visit you in Buenos Aires. Yeah. 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 So, Craig, you get to do something you love for a living, which is awesome. How how mm-hmm. do you avoid burnout? Thanks so much for asking that question. That's a wonderful question. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's musicians who are successful. Mm-hmm. Most of them pick a style of music and they're able to advertise themselves as a blues musician or as mm-hmm. a jazz musician or as a folk musician. And there are there are occasionally people who are very versatile and and at the same time successful. Mm-hmm. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a person who I, could, I can't settle in on one style of music. Mm-hmm. And in my mm-hmm. case, it's probably made my career less successful. But I think it's, made, it, it's definitely helped me to, to, it's helped my longevity in terms of my loving music and continuing to be creative. Mm-hmm. So I study classical guitar and I still play Bach on the classical guitar. I mm. still play a lot of the standard Spanish pieces by Isaac, Isaac Albeniz mm-hmm. and um, a lot of the great Spanish composers. And so I'm really fortunate to have an endless repertory of classical music that I can always choose from. Mm. 
So my only restriction is my own laziness. Which I, I try not to be lazy. And, and at the same time, I, as a teenager playing, you know, listening to the Beatles and folk music and rock music, I always wanted to be a great songwriter. Mm-hmm. And my next album will be an album of original songs. Oh, great. In, in styles that have absolutely nothing to do with tango. And so I'm embracing my American um, <laughs> uh, self, mm-hmm. my American culture. Mm-hmm. And I had spent a lot of time in Buenos Aires. I feel like I have two cultures. Mm-hmm. I speak Spanish quite well, uh, according to my Spanish-speaking friends. And, and so I, I mean, le- learning the language is a big part of absorbing another culture. Yeah. But but I guess my I'm I like to be versatile. Mm-hmm. So I, I write songs. I also sing and play songs by other people in Spanish or in English. Mm-hmm. I sing. I like to sing early jazz songs from the twenties mm-hmm. and uh, some a few songs from the thirties. Nice. I I even have a beautiful song uh, published by. Uh, it's a song called "If You Want the Rainbow, You Must Have the Rain." Mm. It's available iTunes and other places. You can probably listen to it for free on YouTube. Okay, yeah. great. Well, Craig, this has been a lot of fun. Um, where do we find out more about you online? And where can we find your music to for purchase? My music is available as CDs or as MP3 downloads mm-hmm. at cdbaby.com. Okay. And look for Craig, Craig Einhorn. Okay. You can also just go to YouTube and listen to most of my music is available that way. Mm-hmm. And iTunes is available on iTunes. I also have a website. My website is terribly outdated, <laughs> and I'm in the process of creating a new website right now, but it's okay. unicornguitar.com. Unicornguitar.com. Okay, I'll have that, and we'll have links to CD Baby uh, in the show notes so people will be able to look you up and, yeah, learn more about you and get a hold of your music. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for uh, bringing up the whole subject of the success of Milonguea de la Chere. <laughs> it's like I have this little gem that's mm-hmm. ex- that exploded all over the world. I mean, there's videos in Moscow. Mm-hmm. There's video in Venezuela. There's video awesome. from, uh, and I'm talking about YouTube videos. There's mm-hmm. videos in Hawaii. There's videos in Croatia, in Germany, that's great. In, in Japan. <laughs> And so it's wonderful to be able to actually talk to somebody and share mm-hmm. what happened with my wonderful uh, version of Milong Milongea de la Chia. Yeah, I really love the story behind all that, and uh, yeah, and I think it'll it'll make the song even hopefully even more popular. So when when we hear it, we'll know what to listen for. Hey, that's correct. He's playing all those instruments and be able to <laughs> yeah, being able to to talk about that talk about that way on a, on a different level. That's great. Joe, I forgot to mention to you that I've only been asked to play at a tango festival once in my life, and it was in Sao Paulo, Brazil, okay. two years ago. Okay. And I, I had two of my Argentine friends, a great guitarist, a virtuoso guitarist, and a virtuoso violinist, mm-hmm. accompany me, and they, they went with me to Brazil, and we performed. Mm-hmm. And we, we were at this festival for a week in a beautiful hotel in Sao Paulo. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in performing other places for people who are fans of Milonguez de la Chere. Okay. So if there's anyone out there who, you know, is involved with the tango community, like your tango community, mm-hmm. um, they can contact me through my Facebook or through my web, uh, YouTube videos or okay. somehow. Yeah. And, and I, uh, I'm, 
yeah, I'm sure people. I, I also, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I also teach tango dancing, tango and milonga dancing. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So for folks out there, this is not just a one-off. You are definitely involved in tango, not just with the song, but you dance and you teach. That's going to be really good to know. Can, can I say one more thing sure. about the song before we absolutely just, uh, one more anecdote, which is absolutely fascinating. Okay. Well, uh, while we were talking about Rebecca Oswald, who is my producer and, and, and recording engineer when mm-hmm. I was recording that song, mm-hmm. Milonga de la Cher, mm-hmm. one night Rebecca said, Oh, I'm going to do something interesting with this song. And I went to sleep and she stayed up almost all night long changing the song. Wow. And so she works for hours and I was asleep and I wake up in the morning and she says, Craig, come here. I got to show you what I did all night long. And she took every single note in the entire song and all the different instruments Mm -hmm. and she aligned them perfectly so that you could put a click track in there. You know, a click track's like a... I'm sorry, you you cut out for one second. Can you explain for those who don't know what a click track is? Yeah. Well, a, a click track is like when musicians practice, they use a metronome sometimes mm-hmm. so that they can work on their, how accurate their rhythm is and so okay. they can stay on the beat. And so when you record, we put a metronome into the, into the recording device mm-hmm. or on one of the tracks and we listen to it and we can play perfectly to the music. Okay. Well, when I recorded Milong, Milonguea de la Cher, I didn't use a click track. Okay. I just played freely and relied on my own sense of rhythm. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, no human being can play as perfectly as a click. Mm-hmm. So my rhythm fluctuated a little bit. Mm. And so Rebecca, overnight, she took all every single note and she, she put a click track in there and she wow. aligned every single note to the click. I woke up in the morning and she was very excited to show this to me. She spent hours doing this. Wow. And she played it for me and I hated it. <laughs> I absolutely hated it. It took all the soul out of the music. It was like a machine playing the music. Oh, wow. <laughs> And I said, Rebecca, I said, there's no soul in the music anymore. I said, can you put it back to the way it was? <laughs> and she says, yeah, I can. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God she saved it, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she put it back. And if it wasn't for that, nobody would dance to, to oh, that tune. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I suppose <laughs> it was worth trying so that you know for sure. It, it, right. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Well, glad you got a good night's well, sleep Joe. out of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, Joe, it's been it's, it's been great uh, talking to you. Yeah. Thanks, thanks so much. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again for your time so much, Craig. I know you're probably busy. You got a lot of projects in the pipeline, but it's yeah, really great to talk to you and to hear all of your stories and to hear about that that wonderful song. Well, thanks. Thanks so much, Joe. Great, great talking to you. And yeah, keep in touch. Yeah, keep in touch. Okay, that was Craig Einhorn. It was great talking to him. If I had the time, I could probably spend several more hours chatting. I really like the long, detailed story of how his version of Milonga de la Yer was recorded. Hopefully this gives us all some deeper insight into the song and allows us to appreciate it even more. It's amazing that he released it way back in 2005 and it's still being enthusiastically played at Milongas all over the world. I also like what Craig said about practice routines. When you find something you love doing, you'll develop a way of becoming good at it. 
It requires you to put in the time, but how you put in the time is up to you. It doesn't have to be through a scheduled, regimented session that lasts several hours each day. Craig doesn't do it that way. He has another way of practicing, and you'll have to find a way that works for you. Maybe it will be through a series of regimented hours on end practice sessions, or, or maybe not. Just because someone does it one way doesn't mean you have to do it that way as well. You just have to put in the time. And building on that topic, consistently putting in the time to do something you love, especially if it's meant to involve some type of presentation in front of an audience, helps prepare you for the moment when you take center stage. Now, that could be a literal stage or, or some other situation. And that goes along with what Craig said. I'm not scared, I'm prepared. I also like what Craig said about getting better. As accomplished as he is, he's still really humble. If you want to improve what it is you're good at, you need to be around people who are doing the same thing, but who are also better and more experienced than you are. That's the best way to work up to a higher level. So thank you again, Craig, for your time and for sharing your thoughts. It's great to know that you are available and willing to share your knowledge at workshops or festivals. So please, if any of you event organizers out there are interested, please get in touch with Craig. I'll have a link to his website and social media in the show notes. And as always, thanks to all you listeners for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe and please leave a five-star rating and review if you haven't already. And that helps out a lot. Okay, that's it for today. You've been listening to Joe's Tango Podcast. I'm Joe Yang, and I'll talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.